hey, if there's seats open by you, would you move in? Fill up any empty seats. We still have some people that need chairs. Uh, just scoot in if you have an empty seat. I promise those people won't bite. So scoot in if you have an empty seat next to you. That would be great. So those of you kind of floating around the wall, you can see if there's an empty chair here or there. Hey, good morning. Uh, my wife destroyed that question, so we'll come back to that in a minute. I'll try to recover. Uh, the Pope was in America in one of his visits, and he was doing meetings all day, and they started to run a little bit long. And he knew he was going to miss um, his Pope mobile to get him to the airport, and so he called a limousine. Limousine pulls up, the driver gets out, and he sees the Pope, and he's like, oh my, my goodness, this is, this is incredible. And he was flustered, and so he's charged to get him to the airport to try to get him to this next flight, and so he gets in his limo. And he starts to drive, but he realizes it's the Pope, so he's driving really slow. It's blinker, it's just doing everything correct, and the Pope is starting to feel some tension because he realizes if this guy drives at this speed, he's going to be late. And so he said, listen, can you speed it up? That only increases the, intention, or the, the tension level for this driver, and so he's even slower. He's creeping. And so the Pope taps him on the shoulder and says, let me drive. So the Pope hops in the driver's seat, and he is now whipping down the freeway. 85, 90 miles an hour, gets pulled over. Police officer walks up to the, and the guy, you know, the Pope rolls down the window, and he sees the Pope, and he's flustered. He doesn't even know what to do. He calls his police chief. He says, listen, I have somebody really important, and they were speeding. I pulled them over. What do I do? And his chief says, well, you give them a ticket. The law is the law. You just you give this person a ticket. Who is it anyway? Is it the governor? He said, no. Is it the mayor? No. Is it a congressman? No. He said, is it the president? No. He said, really, who is this then? He says, I have no idea. All I know is the Pope is driving him. <laughs> so somebody in the lobby after this last service says, what did the joke have to do with your message at all? <laughs> I'm going to tell you what it means. Often in our faith, it's what's right in front of us is what matters most. We're in this series about faith, and it's more than a feeling. And we wanted to talk about faith because I believe it's a pretty misunderstood word in our culture. We say very quickly, I have faith. I have a faith. The reason I wanted you to answer that question is because it's a tough one to figure out. What is your faith made of? I'm sure if you took some time to unpack that with people, you would find a varying degree of answers about what their faith was actually made up of. And so this morning, we continue our series. It's the fourth part, and I encourage you to listen to the weeks previous because I think it's going to lay some groundwork. We have really three objectives we're trying to accomplish in this series. First is that you evaluate your faith. You peel back that orange peel, if you will, and look at your faith and figure out what is it made of? What is it really about? I would wager to say that most in Northeast Wisconsin, faith revolves around merit and works. I just learned this week for the first time about Fat Tuesday. Some of you are giggling. Okay, so listen, someone shows up at church and hands me Poonchkis Donuts. Is it Poonchkis? 
I'm like, what is this? And so there I hear about Fat Tuesday, and I had no idea that's how Mardi Gras was connected. And I thought, oh my goodness. This is so steeped in our culture that there's an idea that you could do whatever you want on one day and somehow balance the scales the next. I think it's important that we evaluate what is our faith really about. Next, he said, is you have to ask God for more faith. Faith does not come by our own good works or deeds. It's something that's given by God, and how many of us have actually gotten on our knees and said, God, please give me more faith. Help me understand. And then last, and really seriously not least, but probably the most important is, as people say they have faith, are you responding? Are you truly responding to your faith? We, we gather here this morning, sometimes I think it's, I people watch you as you walk in, and then I think you sit in the chair, and then these songs come about. I, I draw near to you, or, or Lord Jesus, come, or this is my story, this is my song. I remember that song has, it, it creates an emotion in me, because I remember my mom used to wake us up by singing that song. Now, my mom can't sing, bless her heart, I hope she's, well, maybe not watching, but maybe she is. But she would sing that, and she sang it because faith, when it has a place in our lives that are real faith, it, it has to respond. And so I watch a lot, of come in, a lot of you come in here and think, wonder why you're here. Because it's that sense of, you know, a budgeted response. But these songs elicit so much of our call to, to proclaim who He is. We said we've got to respond to our faith. That's really our, our objective for this series. It comes out of the verse, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. We said really the, the faith verse that's the whole faith chapter about legends of the faith. It says now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Really that faith is, Martin Luther called it, is, is running full speed into a dark room with confidence that God has the path marked out. Another way, St. Thomas Aquinas said this, to one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. You don't need more facts. You don't need more things to anchor your faith. It just is what it is. You believe. To one without faith, no explanation is possible. Have you ever found you talk to somebody and you're trying to help them understand your faith? They just don't get it. And friends, you need to know this morning, you cannot intellectually explain someone to the kingdom. You can share the truth of Christ, but at some point, there has to be a faith moment, a trust moment of what faith is. It's not something you're going to have all the facts for and try to rationally bring someone to God. Could those things spring something in their soul, but eventually a faith has to be given. And so this morning, we want to talk about another living response. Last week, we talked about the bleeding woman, and we talked about this woman with a 12-year ailment of spending all her finances and socially being outcast, and you could imagine her being the lowest of lows socially and financially and having no place in culture. This morning, we talk about someone on the other end of the spectrum, someone who has power, authority, status, wealth, means. And it's the Roman centurion who gets 
acknowledged for great faith in all Israel. And so it lands us really into, we're going to look in Luke chapter 7 this morning. But the backdrop is this, a couple things are going on. First, this story takes place in Capernaum. Capernaum is really the home base of Jesus. It's where he spends most of his adult life in as kind of a hometown. Now, a couple things about Capernaum. It's a northern uh, town on the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing village. It's a uh, kind of a, a, a wayport for many of the roads that will travel through uh, Israel will go through Capernaum. But also very interesting is Jesus will eventually curse one of three cities and Capernaum's one of them. Largely because Capernaum has seen all these miracles but will not believe. Doesn't that have true faith? And so it's interesting that this will be one of those cities. Today, if you go to Jerusalem or you go to Israel, excuse me, you can still see ruins of Capernaum. And we had a nice fish lunch right on the coast there, right by Capernaum. But nobody lives there anymore. Really, prophecy that Jesus had spoken. Second part is Israel's now under Roman rule. Now, it's interesting that we, it's important that we know this this morning because you know that Romans would conquer nations. And often, one of the ways that they would begin to assimilate those nations into Roman kind of culture and, and, and the way of being a Roman is they would adopt all the gods. They didn't care. They wouldn't say, no longer can you worship your God. They would say, all the gods are welcome. And so it was known, there was a phrase, it was easier to find a man, uh, a man in Rome, or a god in Rome than a man, meaning if you were looking for somebody, you'd find gods quicker than you would find people. And that's because everybody was carving gods because they didn't want to miss a god. If there was the god of the empty chair at Green Bay Community Church service, someone would carve a chair and it would go on a mantle and you'd pray to that god that you'd have a chair open every time you entered the service. Seriously. They had gods for everything. But what they also had is massive tension with Israel because obviously the Israelites did not want Rome there and they wanted them out. And so there's tension. With that, Rome would have brought many uh, of their soldiers in, legions, and we're going to find a centurion that's there, but many of those uh, are there throughout Rome. Another interesting part that you need to know as far as background much of Rome is ruled with a set of values, and we've talked about a few of those before, but one this morning that um, Hayden, our historian, our, where is Hayden? Where is it? Raise his hand. There you go. Proud of you, buddy. He brought in our study, his, his, your Roman history graduate, your degree, right, finally came into play at, like on Thursday morning. Um, isn't that funny? We graduate with these degrees, and then we're not actually doing what we graduated with, but anyway, that's a whole other message. Um, is dignitas, and it means merit, worth, prestige, and dignity. It meant, that was really important in Rome, that uh, it, it kind of establishes your place in culture, your, your worth, your legal value in many court systems, and it was kind of who's who. And this was a really important piece to this, and we're going to find that this Roman centurion has... Uh, uh, and a scale, a very high value um, in, with dignitas. He's a Roman centurion. That would have meant he commanded 80 to 100 soldiers. It would have meant, too, as a Roman uh, centurion, he would have been an enlisted man. That meant, if you don't know the difference between enlisted, enlisted really does a lot of the, the, the hand-to-hand combat and the fighting, where the officer structure is who guides many men. 
But in a Roman centurion, that meant he would have started from the lowest of ranks, worked his way up. And you know in the military structure, even today, uh, an enlisted man at that highest level, uh, I know in the Marine Corps they called them warrant officers, were almost esteemed higher than most officers because they had started from the bottom and worked their way up. This would be a Roman centurion, had fought battles, had probably had scars and medals, And so they would now be under command of about 80 to 100 soldiers. They would have received pay about 20 times that of ordinary soldiers' pay, about 5,000 denarii per year. There's actually some cases where that could go up, depending on what craft they brought. Um, Not like craft, like cutting and pasting. Um, Like javelin thrower, a certain weapon use that they could have. Last but not least, they wore a special helmet. They weren't like mixed in with a bunch of military the same. They, They were very unique in what they wore. Special helmet, they had an ornate harness, like a chest harness of much better quality. And then they had this staff of vine wood that was a symbol of their rank. And so they were very noticed, Uh, they had means, so they were very wealthy, and they had a social status, and they had power. I mean, this is the person that we're introduced to, this Roman centurion. So in Luke chapter 7, we start the story. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he enters Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master highly valued, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking to come and heal his servant. We just need to stop here for a moment. A couple interesting thoughts that give you context. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's a different account of this. Now, if you know about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know that they're all of the account of Jesus. They are in contrast to one another. But as you would take any four people in this room to write an account of this morning, they would look different. And so Luke is a doctor, and he writes in the very beginning of his Gospel, I'm going to do a very detailed account, a more accurate account. Matthew is just more wanting to get you the concept of what's going on. So what you're going to find in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that the actual Roman centurion is saying these things to Jesus. Let me explain because it's not different than what we're going to read here. He actually, in that culture, if I were to tell uh, Harper, I would say, Harper, I can't go to elder meeting this week, week, so could you tell the elders of our church these things? And she would say, Troy said this, They would take that in that time as if I was there. And so Matthew writes as if the Roman centurion is right there. He's actually not, though. So this is where we pick up. There's a centurion's servant whom his master high valued. This is first kind of key, that very interesting note. The centurion cares about a servant. That's unique. That's not very common. You would think he probably had lots of servants. Why is there something going on that he would actually care about this sick servant? It probably meant, too, that he'd already had exhausted some means to help heal him. And he hears Jesus is coming. Jesus is in town, which is your second clue, something unique about this centurion. Why does he care that Jesus is coming? What does he know about Jesus? Most likely that Jesus is healed people, and there's a chance that this could help his servant. Well, then we get a little bit more insight that this centurion hears about Jesus and sends some of the elders of the Jews to him. Wow, wait a second. A centurion, 
that has taken over Israel and taken them captive. He's, he's ruling, he has power and authority, but the elders of the synagogue in Capernaum are actually going and represented him. Now, you could first say, did he force them? Did he maybe say, listen, if you don't do this because I'm in charge, you're busted? We're going to see some insight where I don't really think that's the case. He sends some elders of the Jews to him asking to come and heal his servant. Look what we find. When he came to Jesus, that means these servants or these elders of the, these elder Jews, they pleaded earnestly with him and said this, this man deserves to have you do this. They're pleading. These Jews of the synagogue that are in captivity, really, by the Romans are saying, this is a good man. This is because he loves our nation. This Roman centurion loves Israel and has built our synagogue. I mean, this is really interesting historically because you would not find Romans really supporting the building of synagogues. Yet this Roman centurion, for some reason, either has funded or physically has gone out there and helped build this synagogue, which is pretty fascinating. He cares for his slave. He cares for his servant. He sends representatives that actually, I think, have some sort of positive relationship. So it goes on in verse 6. He was not far from the house, this is Jesus, when the centurion senses he's close, I don't know how, and says to him, uh, Lord, don't trouble yourself. He sends friends to say, tell them, tell Jesus not to come any further. He says, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Now, does that sound odd to you? A Roman centurion who has dignitas, who has means and, and money and wealth, has authority, ha- has reputation, He's saying, not only do I not deserve to have you come under my roof, that is, that's why I didn't even come in front of you. I don't consider myself worthy to even come into your presence. I mean, this is an odd story about a Roman centurion. I'll just push pause for a moment. I want to talk just for a moment about the problem when we have everything we need. Jesus will talk about wealth and affluence, and he doesn't demonize them. He doesn't say they're evil, but he just says what they are. They're roots to something else. They created an independence in your own life where you don't need God, or at least you think you don't. This Roman centurion has all that, and in the midst of that, senses obviously a great need to have Jesus heal his servant. But look what he's saying further. I don't even deserve to have you in my roof. I'm sure that this Roman centurion could have invited nearly anyone in the nation of Israel, and they would have felt humbled to be in his home. Not only that, I don't even deserve to be in your presence. I'm sure this Roman centurion was honored by Caesar and many of his commanders. I'm sure he had awards and and medals that would have made him very dignified and respected all throughout the land. And yet he says to Jesus, a rabbi, a simple rabbi, I don't even deserve to be in your presence. Sometimes what's right in front of us, in the front seat of our faith, when we say, what is our faith made of? It's It's sitting right in front of us. 
And that's really the first point this morning about our faith. This Roman centurion publicly acknowledges Jesus' divinity. By saying, you, I don't even deserve to have you come to my house. I don't even deserve to, have, to be in front of you. He is publicly affirming to the elder Jews, to his friends, to this servant slave, and whoever else was hearing this, he knows he's the one. What's in the front seat of your faith is the name of Jesus. And friends, why is it today that we struggle to publicly acknowledge Jesus? It's interesting the responses today in our culture when someone says to you, why do you, why do you go to that weird community campus place on Sundays? Oh, I'm, just, I'm just religious or just, you know. Why not? Because I worship the name of Jesus and I get to gather with other people that, that respect and know and honor and, and give glory to His divinity and we get to sing songs around the name of Jesus. When someone says, why don't you treat your family this way? Why are you you're so straight-laced at work? Why not cheat or cut a corner here and there? And you might say, well... I just don't believe in that. That's a real safe PC way, right? Politically correct way to talk. I just don't believe in that. When you have this chance to publicly acknowledge, it's because I love Jesus. And I know he's the one, and I know he's asked me to live differently in this world. I don't do it because I'm trying to collect points in heaven. I don't do it because I'm trying to earn my way back. I'm not trying to balance Fat Tuesday, right? I'm not trying to get something back. Because nowhere in your Bible from Genesis to Revelation does it give us any credit for doing good works. No, it says when we come to faith, what's right in the front seat is acknowledging that's Jesus. I follow Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Do you publicly acknowledge the name of Jesus? I mean, even saying it feels awkward, right? In public, I worship the name of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I believe Jesus is the Son of God and died for my sin and, re- and rose again. It's claiming the name of Jesus. The simplicity of our faith today, what it's made up of is just acknowledging the divinity of, of God and that holiness of the one who he sent, Jesus, to be God on earth. In, 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 full, in, in a full sense of human and experiencing all those things on earth and living a perfect life and we're coming up to Easter as we go through Lent to, to get ready to celebrate a Good Friday. Why is good a cross and someone being tortured? Because that's God's Son, His greatest offering, the Lamb of God. It's acknowledging His divinity. Why is it so hard for us to acknowledge the One? You see how simple faith can be, yet how difficult. Matthew 10, 32. It's a great passage. It's one of my favorite as a kid because it scared me. And it says, it's Jesus saying, Therefore, though anyone who publicly acknowledges me before men on earth, then I, then I, Jesus says, will acknowledge you to my Father. 
makes me think about when we talk about the nature of faith today in the church today, what is it really about? Is it about sitting in chairs on Sunday and then Monday through Saturday putting him away, tucking him away, just, just kind of sanitizing it because, oh, we don't want to get into a faith conversation outside of these doors. Friends, it is the name of Jesus that has power and authority in our lives. Are you publicly acknowledging his divinity? This Roman centurion lives out his faith, his faith response this way. Let's continue on. It says in verse 7, but say the word. This is what, again, these friends are saying to Jesus. This Roman centurion hasn't even gotten in front of Jesus. But say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. He gets that Jesus is who he says he is, and he could command healing. For I myself am a man under authority. This Roman centurion is giving the picture that I know because I have people who command me, and then I have soldiers underneath me. I tell this one go, and he goes. I tell that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He's not only acknowledging the divinity of Jesus, he is publicly submitting to his authority. He's not only saying, you are Jesus, he's saying, I'm living in such a way to say, I know you can command it, and whatever you ask, whatever you speak and command, I will do, I will follow, and I'll ask for you to command and just heal the servant, because you have that power. I know many of us don't have really positive father stories, and that's sad in our, in our world today, and it's been going on for centuries because we're broken and flawed people. I love my father, but that journey was a rough one. I have one memory, though, that I remember with my father that I really cherished because I, I remember feeling this sense of submitting to his authority and his protection. We, my brother and I were little guys, and we would walk in California with our cut-off frayed jeans and no shoes on, and I don't think even shirts, but... We were walking up the neighborhood and a group of kind of gang boys came up, pushed us in the ivy and had a knife, uh, knives to us and were threatening us and I did the real brave thing. Um, I broke free and bolted for home, left my three-year younger brother right there. I shot for home. And you know, if I tell the story in other groups, it was 20 miles away and I got there really fast, but it probably was only a few blocks. I got home and out of breath and said, Dad... Some boys pulled knives on me. Trevor's still up there. I'll never forget my dad. I felt like literally just sweeping me up, throwing me in the car. And I mean, it felt like we were going 100 miles an hour. He cranks the car so it's, you know, it's, now again, it may, this may not have happened. I'm just, I, I must have, it could, I was seven, right? It's all these things. I felt like our car was just sliding sideways. I remember the boys jumping into the eye because they think they're going to get hit. Remember my dad getting up and scaring the you-know-what out of him. Remember him saying to him, now when my boys walk down the street and you see them, you cross the street and then you walk them back home. You take care of them. And they did from that point on. But I remember looking at my dad thinking, that's my dad. <laughs> Man, when faith hits you, the response is you go, that's my dad. No matter what he asks, I am submitting to his authority. And friends, when God lays out in our Bibles and he says, man, 
don't, don't be sexually active outside of marriage. And it's not because I'm trying to be a bummer. It's because you submit to my authority and it's because oh, it's what I have for you. And I know I love you more than you love yourself. When I ask you, learn to forgive others because otherwise if you carry bitterness, it's going to rot your bones. It's you submit to his authority because you know the Father knows better than you. This is why we read our Bibles. This is why we do teaching on Sundays through the Scriptures and talk about what is it that Jesus is asking of us. And really our faith comes down to some simple pieces. It's acknowledging who he is. And if you acknowledge his divinity, then you've got to submit to his authority. And there's no place for moral obligation. There's no place in faith for balancing scales if I've done some wrongs, if I intentionally did some wrongs on Fat Tuesday. Can I right them? Friends, that's religion. And you're going to find, we're going to pick up here in a minute, but you're going to find that's religion and that's empty. This Roman centurion surprisingly does something that is so powerful. He's publicly acknowledging the divinity of God, but he's also publicly submitting to his authority. Look what it says in verse 9. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Wait a second. This Roman centurion just did something in Scripture that I don't know where else we found. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. How do you amaze the God of the universe? The Son of God. How do you amaze Him? He says, when Jesus heard this, He was amazed at Him. And turning to the crowd, He makes a proclamation. He says, I tell you this, I have not found such great faith anywhere in Israel. Isn't Israel the chosen people? Isn't Israel the religious, the ones who are doing it all right? And a pagan, a Gentiles we're going to find. There are two different classes that Scripture talks a lot about. It's the Jew... The promised line through Abraham, Isaac, and David. But then there's one called the Gentile. And that's everybody who's non-Jew. Verse 10, it says, Then the men who had found, who, who had been sent to return to the house and found this servant well. He, he's made well. I mean, honestly, this is the, the quick part of the story that just, yeah, he's healed. It's done. I want to pick up, though, and I want to just stop here about this amazement and get into what this says at the end. It says, Jesus was amazed. The word means a wonderful thing, and it's marveling. It's to wonder with great wonder, exceedingly to wonder at or marvel at. It's to be had in admiration. Jesus, if we could just capture his face, his expression of just marveling, and he, the, the centurion's not even in front of him, but he's marveling at the reality this this centurion has that much faith to trust that he doesn't even have to be in front of Jesus. So Matthew 8, remember I told you, is a different kind of writing of the same account. They're not in contrast, but he adds this one statement that Jesus makes that Luke doesn't. It's in chapter 8, verse 10 and 11 and 12. It says, when Jesus heard, he was amazed said to the following, truly I tell you, you've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. But look at verse 11. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so 
I don't know if you're like me, but I've read the Bible sometimes and like this passage and go, I do not know what that meant. Anybody like that, me? You read and go, I do not know what that meant. That's why I love a different version of Scripture that reads it this way. The message, it says this. Taken aback, Jesus said, I've yet to come across this simple kind of trust in Israel. The very people who are supposed to know all about God and how He works. That's Israel. I mean, remember, they wandered through the desert. God says, you're, you're my chosen people. He set up laws and ways for them to behave. These are the very people that should be acknowledging his divinity and should be submitting to his authority. But this is a Roman Gentile. It says, but this man is the vanguard of many outsiders. What is he talking about outsiders? It's Gentiles who will be soon coming from all directions, streaming in from the east, pouring in from the west, sitting down at God's kingdom, banquet alongside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know what he's talking about? Paul will later say that Jesus dies and grafts a new branch into the promised line of people, all Gentiles. It's all of us. All of us non-Jewish pulls us into this picture. And so this is the first account where Jesus says he is the beginning of Gentiles that will begin to come from the east, from Green Bay, they will come. From East Africa, they will come. From South America, they will come. They will come from all over the world one day and be at the banquet alongside. That is for us. But look what he says in the second part of this. Then, those who grew up in the faith, Notice he puts it in quotes. But had no faith will find themselves out in the cold, outsiders to grace and wondering what happened. It's people who supposedly were to grow up in the faith. And I think we find in our culture today in northeast Wisconsin, many who grow up religious, thinking they're in the faith. But their faith is balancing scales of merit but they don't know the value of what they have. They've missed it. It's the story of a man that was in Paris and went to a, a, a thrift store and bought a beautiful necklace and paid very little for it. As he went to, through customs and then had to pay a duty charge, he, he got charged quite a bit of money. Curious, he took it to a jeweler, and this jeweler was looking at, under, at a microscope and, and jumped back and said, I'll offer you $25,000 for this, this necklace. It's a true story. The man said, you're kidding me. And the guy went back down, came back and says, 35000 How much do you want for this? And this guy said, why? Why is this so? I just bought this at a trinket store. What's so valuable about this? The owner of this little thing went under the microscope and looked, and it said, Napoleon Bonaparte to my dear Josephine. Friends, when we talk about faith in Jesus, do you know what's inscribed on that? Or do you carry it around like a thrift store bracelet, a thrift store necklace that you don't understand? Every week we go to communion. That is not to be done trite or traditional or just because of religious duty. You don't get any merit for that. That is to remind you of the divinity of who Jesus is and call you to submission to his authority. That is faith. 
That's the front seat of your faith. Don't miss what's in the front seat. It is Jesus himself. What's your faith made up of this morning? It's that surrender. It's that acknowledgement. It's that trust in who Jesus is. As we go to communion this morning, that really simply is the question, what's your faith made of? Is it a collection of things that you're doing for God? You know, one of the questions I asked myself this week, and I felt convicted, what if I didn't do church work? What would my faith be made of? I had to really ask myself because I have been involved in church work since 18, and I'm 52. It's, it's a long time, and so in, I've always been doing church for God. And not that that's bad, but I think I could lose myself in this. And a lot of us in staff could lose ourselves in the sense that we're doing works for God, but we lose the basic of our faith, and it's made up of acknowledging his divinity. I follow Jesus and surrendering to his authority and publicly acknowledging that. Have you responded that way? Or is your faith a collection of just good works? Balancing the Tuesday and the Wednesday. Friends, look in your Bible. Really, I'm not, I'm not throwing anyone under the bus. Read your Bible. If you want to contest me on that, read from Genesis to Revelation and come back and tell me, where does it allow you to earn your way into heaven? It never does. It's because of Jesus. And so this morning, as we go to communion, can I encourage you and challenge you Don't take communion and bolt out the door. If you're going to leave, just go. Don't blaspheme the very table that calls you to be reminded of his divinity and remind you of his authority. Could I encourage you to kneel? The word humility actually means to to bring low. And could you maybe just take and not worry about who's in the room, because this Roman centurion does it, and take your communion and cup And kneel at the cross. There's enough room. Kneel. Publicly confess. Publicly acknowledge your surrender to him. If you don't know God this morning, don't take communion. If you, as you look at your faith this morning, and it's not made up of a faith that can acknowledge that, then I challenge you to, after service, talk to an elder, pray with somebody, talk about that. Communion is saved for those of us who are ready to publicly acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and that we live a life surrendered to his beautiful authority. Father in heaven, as we go to the cross this morning, we are reminded of your great sacrifice. God, may we, may we celebrate your divinity and celebrate your authority this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.